It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Thursday morning, the 12th of May. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. As you know, the Minister for Health was before the Oireachtas Health Committee yesterday. Stephen Donnelly was explaining to members why the government wants to proceed with co-locating the new National Maternity Hospital on the grounds of the St Vincent's Hospital campus. Religious influence of any kind is expressly prohibited in the new National Maternity Hospital. There is no mechanism for any religious involvement now or at any time in the future in either St. Vincent's Health Group or the new National Maternity Hospital. The government is in agreement with its critics on this issue in that it does not want religious involvement in deciding which services will be made available. Ireland does not have a good track record when it comes to religion and women's reproductive health. It has a poor, dark history. Everyone agrees that that experience should not be part of our future and should remain in the past. Women are therefore rightly demanding that when it comes to our new National Maternity Hospital, there can be no religious involvement whatsoever at any point now or into the future. Women are right to demand that, and men indeed We are right to demand that. It is this consensus, though, that makes this debate very hard for most people to decide who is right and who is wrong. People, for very, very understandable reasons, are demanding absolute assurances that all legally permissible services are provided. They are demanding that and they are right to demand that. Consensus, again. Consensus is one thing. Agreement on how to proceed is a different thing altogether. Concerns are understandably being raised. Questions are being asked around land ownership and other issues. Indeed. The Minister for Health, who was scheduled to be the only person to appear before the Health Committee yesterday, Stephen Donnelly, as it turned out, turned up with an army of officials, HSE legal advisors and a number of clinicians, all of whom argued that hospital services would be decided in line with what services are legally available in the state without any religious influence. Let's speak to two members of that committee. David Cullinan, who is Sinn Féin's 
spokesperson on health and Fianna Fáil TD John Lahart. A very good morning to both of you and thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. John Lahart, perhaps I could start with yourself. I think you're in line with your minister and the government in that you believe that the question of ethos has been answered at this stage. Yeah, I mean, I, I, morning, Michael, and to your listeners. Um, <clears throat> it's a point I made yesterday at the committee that a few weeks ago, I mean, you can boil the issues that are rightly concerning people uh, and concern me um, down to two or three. Ethos is one, in other words, that there would not be any religious interference or ethnic interference uh, in the uh, new maternity hospital. Governance and ownership, then, is the is the other issue. Um and just to give give my own background, you know, I wasn't always happy with this. A year ago, there was a, a cross-party, a loose cross-party group established in, in the Dáil uh, of TDs and senators who had uh, concerns about this. And, and I was a member of that. But I think in the interim period, uh, the minister has moved to address uh, any of the significant concerns I had. And they would have revolved around ethos. You know, will there be any religious interference with this? Will there be any impediment to all the, uh, the the procedures and services that women are entitled to under the law in Ireland? Will there be any impediment to that? So there would have been some of my concerns going back, and I would, like David, have been uh, a supporter of the, the Eighth Amendment. Um, so the context, as I said, going into the debate uh, yesterday, you know, were questions in terms of ethos and governance, but by yesterday, I think... You know, even the objections that the two members of the HSE board had uh, had been pretty well cleared out of the way, but uh, they hadn't been cleared out of the way when they had voiced their objections. But remember, the 10 other members of the HSE board uh, approved uh, the proposal, so the HSE board approves it. What really struck me yesterday, uh, one of the powerful things, is that we have been, uh, you know, you've played the clip from, from Stephen Donnelly there, about how women have been treated, not just by uh, religious institutions from a health perspective uh, over the last century, but also by state uh, agencies over the last century and even in recent years, and the importance of their voices being heard. And I just thought the professional uh, clinicians, particularly um, the uh, Professor uh, Rona Mahoney, Dr. Rona Mahoney, mm. and Dr. Mary Higgins, I just thought they were powerful advocates uh, for this move, and I think. The answers they gave, if people had an opportunity to listen to them and not just the minister, not just take the minister's word for it, they would have been very much uh, reassured by okay. the answers. Hopefully we'll hear some of what they had to say mm-hmm. yesterday on the programme later this morning. Let me go sure. to David Cullinan, though, if I, I can, uh, because it's not as clear-cut in your mind, is it? No, not at all. But it's also not as simple as if somebody is right or wrong. It's about what's the best approach. And uh, John spoke about the two members of the board that dissented the HSE board, and he says that their concerns were addressed. We can't speak for those individuals because they wrote into the committee uh, a couple of days ago and they reiterated their concerns, put them in writing, which is quite an unusual move, and stated again that they had concerns. And their chief concern is the legal ownership of the land. And that was always my uh, chief ownership, uh, sorry, chief uh, concern. Uh, we, we were, all of us were promised a number of years ago, a long number of years ago, when the sisters of charity said that they were gifting the land to the state, that that's what ha- that would happen, and that the, the land would be brought into public ownership. We have a very complicated healthcare system in this state, as we know. We have a mix of public uh, hospitals and private hospitals, but we also have 
voluntary hospitals, independent hospitals and HSE hospitals. We have Section 38 organisations, Section 39 organisations. And what we did a number of years ago in the Oireachtas through Shalonta Care was agreed that going forward what we want is public money spent on public hospitals. We don't want the establishment of private companies and private entities running our health services. And here we are, the very first hospital built since Lawn to Care, and we're establishing a very complicated legal contractual company framework. The company that has been established won't be owned by the state. It's a new company that's been established called uh, the National Maternity Hospital at Ellen Park. It will have directors coming from three sources. That company itself will be owned by St. Vincent's Healthcare Group. Uh, that group will own the lands on which the hospital is built. And then St. Vincent's Healthcare Group is in and of itself owned by St. Vincent's Holdings. So now we have three companies with three constitutions, with three different boards. And bear in mind that board members on the new company being established will come from the, the St. Vincent's Holding Group. We have concerns about the vagueness of some phrases in the constitution and in the lease. And with respect to John or myself, if there was ever a legal challenge, it won't be assurances from the minister or assurances from politicians or even assurances from clinicians that will deal with all of those issues. It will be legal people, it will be judges and it will be courts. Okay, but so the phrase... There are, concerns which, there are concerns which haven't been addressed. And I, if I can just make this point, Michael, we haven't heard from the landowners. So last month, the Sisters of Charity divested in full their interests of the land to the St. Vincent's Healthcare Group. They now own the land. So we have never heard from them okay. as politicians. Okay. I certainly haven't. As to why they simply won't follow through on the commitment to give the land. Can I just ask David Cullinan one question before I go yeah. back to you, John Lahart? Uh, because the phrase you're talking about there, I think, is clinically appropriate, which, as I understand it, is medical terminology or medical stroke legal terminology. Uh, and... Uh, today, your committee will meet again to discuss this and you'll be talking to the former master, Peter Boylan, who will advise against locating the hospital in St. Vincent's together with Deirdre Madden and Sarah McLaughlin, uh, the two board members uh, who you mentioned earlier. Uh, but put those three against the current master, Shane Higgins, and 52 doctors, the directors of midwifery right uh, across uh, the country, the Attorney General, uh, other board members like Fergus Finlay, uh, who has spoken very clearly uh, about all of this. Uh, and uh, it, it's very hard to understand uh, why you're coming down with the minority view, or is that a, a fair assessment of what you are doing, David? No, it isn't, because I don't disagree with the clinicians. The clinicians in Hollis Street understandably want a new National Maternity Hospital. That hospital at the moment is a voluntary hospital. They're not as concerned as I am about the ownership of the land, uh, the company that will be set up, okay. the fact that we will have uh, okay, a Okay, let, let, let John Lahart come back in there, because that, that's want, the point you what, were what making. What they want, understandably, if I can make the point, Michael, what they want, understandably, is a new hospital to move out of. Mm. Uh, the hospital they're in. I support that. But sure. I, we have a wider responsibility to get it right. And if there is... OK, but your, your concern is about the ownership and that was the point yeah. you were making. Let, let John Lahart respond legal to Legal ambiguity. It yeah. won't be clinicians that will answer those questions. That's John, the point. John Lahart. You know, I think David's made just an important point there, you know, that uh, Sinn Féin is not opposed uh, to the new National Maternity Hospital being located at, uh, at Vincent's. OK, and that is an important point. If we were starting now, Michael... You know, would I want a publicly owned hospital built on public land? Absolutely. And I hope that this is, you know, that this marks a turning point. But let's let's look at the ownership as it, as it is. 
the HSE will essentially own the land. And I mean, this point was made repeatedly yesterday. They're going to lease uh, the land from uh, St. Vincent's, um, uh, the, the Vincent's NMH uh, New Maternity Hospital Group for 299 years. Now, if you or I got a lease on a house for 99 years, we'd essentially consider that we'd own it. And while, you know, some have said, look, why can't, why won't the, the, the state compulsorily purchase it? I think there is legal opinion that, number one, that would delay the project. But more importantly, number two, you know, would a judge say, well, you're, you're getting a 300-year lease on this. It is as good as ownership. Um, I think a number of, th- of things have been uh, improved in the last year by Minister Donnelly. And that relates specifically uh, to the clinical, operational, financial and budgetary independence of the new uh, maternity hospital. It will have all of those things. There are independence and autonomy clauses uh, included, particularly Clause 5, included in the constitution uh, of the new maternity hospital. Okay. So I'm satisfied okay. that the changes that have been made in the last year, particularly in terms of... And, and that's fair enough. Yep. That, that is fair enough. Uh, but there is sort of uh, a problem. Uh, in that we're told that clinically appropriate means that maternity services uh, that are legally available in the state will be available in the maternity hospital and that it won't mean cardiac cardiac surgery, for example, because that won't be clinically appropriate. Now we're hearing dermatology will be available in the hospital and we don't know know if that will be private or public uh, and how will that be considered in terms of whether it's clinically appropriate in a maternity hospital? Okay, so look, that piece, for example, is, look, this is part of the complexities of it. Um, Part of the footprint of the proposed new hospital overlaps on the existing hospital. And that footprint of the existing hospital includes services like dermatology. So because part of the footprint of the proposed new hospital overlaps on the existing hospital, services that are available in that existing part of the overlapping footprint will be available in the new maternity hospital. Okay. But it was made very clear yesterday now uh, by Dr. Mary Higgins in relation to clinical appropriateness. You know, she made the point that, you know, there were things in relation to, to the, the, the care of women, health care of women that were, you know, uh, available years ago, like some physiosomy. I know I pronounced that wrong. Symphysiotomy, um, yeah. Yep. Yes, okay. um, that certainly, you know, wouldn't be considered appropriate now. Um, there may be uh, procedures, services, innovations, breakthroughs in, in maternal care that we just have no idea. These are her words mm. uh, that are not available now, but could be available in the future. Mm. And that is what, uh, you know, clinically appropriate means. So it's services appropriate uh, to the health okay. care. Let, let, let David... Uh, you can't. Uh, oh, that line has dropped out, I think. Uh, let, D- D- David, <laughs> is it something that's open to interpretation? Uh, because appropriate uh, could be uh, something that uh, is looked on subjectively. On that issue, we will hear today in the Eruptus Health Committee from uh, two legal people who will have a different view to the legal people that work for the HSC. So let's hear what they have to say. When there is ever ambiguity, Legally, as I said, it won't be clinicians or politicians that will adjudicate on that. Potentially, it could be courts. But if you go back to a point that John made in relation to the ownership of the land, it's very, very clear in the legal framework that the landlord and the owner is St. Vincent's Healthcare Group. They own the land. The very reason why a new company called National Maternity Hospital at Ellen Park Dac has been established is because that's the entity that will run and operate the hospital. 
that company that's been established will have three directors coming from St. Vincent Healthcare Group. Mm. The reason why they're putting three directors on it is because they will own the lands, they will be the landlords. And then that St. Vincent's Healthcare Group in and of itself is uh, is owned by St. Vincent's Holdings. So we're ending up with a very, very complex situation. Very, very complex. And ve- very hard for most of us to follow, to be completely honest with it you. Is, but the, uh, bottom, uh, the bottom line, if I can make yeah, one final point yeah. if I can, none of that would be necessary if the land was gifted to the state. That's okay. the point. There would I, be no need for all of these very complicated legal... I, I, I hear you, but, but, but I also hear the argument, so what? What difference does it make? Uh, let's listen to 30 seconds of the Taoiseach. The question I want to put to you, Deputy, is no one has explained to me how the difference between a 300-year lease at €10 Euros and outright hold a freehold ownership, uh, how that materially affects uh, the governance or the clinical operational or financial independence of the hospital. Nobody has actually explained that to me, the how of that. People might not be happy, they might want freehold versus leasehold, but there's no clear indication uh, following the articulation of that view as to how that materially impacts, in real terms now, the operational, clinical or financial independence of the new maternity hospital. In other words, does it matter who owns it uh, in terms of what services are delivered? Michael, the Minister for Health said yesterday at the Health Committee that in the most recent discussions, he again pressed the issue of ownership. He asked, uh, and it was his position at that time, only a number of months ago, that they were again pushing for public ownership. Why? If it isn't important, why were they pushing for it? The Taoiseach and the Taunista have previously said that their preference was for full public ownership. A okay. number of moments ago, John said his preference, if he was starting again, would hmm. be for full, full, yeah. full public ownership. Why? Because you don't end up with a company that's operating outside of the HSE that runs and operates a hospital that the taxpayer will spend almost 800 million euro or possibly up to a billion euro okay. on. John, back to what I said about Shalom Okay, can I just go back to John Lahar, please, just for one moment, uh, because I thought an interesting point was raised yesterday by Breed Smith, the people before Profit TD, and she spoke about Savita Halepanaver, who was, as things stood legally, in the state at the time entitled to have her pregnancy terminated in order to save her life. Clinicians at the hospital in Galway deemed it clinically inappropriate to do that and as a result she lost her life. So is that a phrase that's open to interpretation I suppose is the question. Okay well according to uh, the professionals, uh, women who were present yesterday, Dr. O'Mahony, Dr. Mary uh, Higgins, elective procedures, in other words, procedures that are, you know, by the choice of a woman, um, are already taking place in Hollis Street. And all the services available in Hollis Street will be available in the new uh, National Maternity Hospital. The Health Regulation of Termination of Pregnancy Act 2018 governs, governs everything else. I just want to make two points. You know, when I grew up, half the houses, all the houses in Ireland, uh, were essentially leasehold. You know, landlords had the freehold. And I remember my late father, you know, giving out about having to pay ground rent. <clears throat> and ground rent really has been gone on, on all new properties for 25, 30 years. But that did not interfere with the ownership. Everybody owned their homes. If they wanted to sell them, they had to pay, uh, pay uh, buy off the, 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 the ground rent. But they owned their homes. They could extend their homes. They could, they could adapt their homes. The landlord uh, had no, it never interfered with the operation uh, or the actual ownership of the homes <clears throat> in, a, in a practical way. 
The second point I want to make is this. Uh, David rightly made the point, because, you know, we talked about it at the very start. Let's go back to the start, because the issues really were ethos, governance, ownership. Mm. And the last piece of the jigsaw uh, is to hear from uh, St. Vincent's and the group representing them. Now, it is, the best, uh, to the best of my understanding, I believe they are going to come before the Health Committee on Monday. I'm, oh. I'm open to correction, but we did invite them. Uh, David and I are on the committee. Uh, we asked that an invitation be issued to them yesterday. It is the best of my understanding that they will uh, be invited on Monday. And the political point I want to make is this, because it can get lost. I have heard no word from David saying that Sinn Féin is opposed to the move of the national new maternity hospital uh, to the St. Vincent site. Mm. I don't think that is your position, David, is it? But you do no, want I'm more time. That's, you you that's want more time. And you were, making the, you were making the point very strongly to the Minister yesterday. What was the point in the Health Committee uh, listening to the Minister or anything like that that the decision is already well, made? If, if, I, if I can just make my position crystal clear, we never opposed the Ellen Park site. We are, we, of course, we're not against the new National Maternity Hospital. There is quite a lot of agreement between me and John on the need to uh, move from Hollis Street into a fit-for-purpose new National Maternity Hospital. But a number of years ago, it was, it was made very, very clear that the land was to be gifted to the state. And it isn't just about whether or not you're the, 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 the owner of the land or not, and, and, and we won't be. It's about a company that's been established, which will be a private company that will run the hospital. It won't be a HSE hospital. It will be... No, but the HSE uh, will uh, own the land, essentially. Will be, it will be a voluntary hospital. And that's no, the problem. You had you have a board the that runs the hospital own the HSE. For, for three, the HSE will own the land, essentially, mm-hmm. for 300 but, years. But, just but it won't own the land, essentially, John. You can't argue... You can't argue against <laughs> and that. Is, that is the argument. It's a very complicated argument, but do you know, I, I think both of you have helped us listening uh, who have been finding it very difficult uh, to follow how complicated and the different strands to all of this uh, a little bit easier. So thank you both uh, very much indeed for doing that and for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, Both TDs there are members of the Oireachtas Health Committee. The committee will be meeting again today. You'll be hearing from uh, the former master, Peter Boylan, and that will probably turn out to be a different conversation than the one that they had yesterday. But our our thanks today to Fianna Falls, John Lahart and the Sinn Féin spokesperson on health, David Cullinan. Deirdre and Kells in touch with us uh, saying, Mike, I have a good idea that could build the maternity hospital in Kells in County Meath. Deirdre, you're just looking for trouble, aren't you? <laughs> My God, is there not enough trouble as it is? Uh, but thanks uh, for sharing that with us uh, this morning. If you're listening to us in Drogheda this morning, you might be interested in this. There is a foul, disgusting, obnoxious malodor emanating from the Drogheda wastewater treatment plant. It's at its worst at night at weekends and during warm weather. Nearby residents often feel ill and their health well-being is significantly affected. Despite frequent meetings with Irish Water, uh, things have not changed. The EPA directive that they addressed these issues urgently was answered this week by Irish Water, Tijuk, when they said they will have the final critical improvements in place in the year 2027. We cannot wait another five years to have this issue resolved. And I would urge urgent and immediate government intervention. Right, uh, that's uh, Fine Gael TD in Louth, Fergus O'Dowd, uh, talking in uh, the Dáil yesterday about the whiff in Drogheda. He was putting his question to the Taoiseach. It was answered on the Taoiseach's behalf by the Minister for Housing, Dara O'Brien. I'm aware of the issue with Drogheda wastewater treatment plants. Thank you for raising it here. Odour neutralising uh, treatment will be implemented at the main pumping station this year. 2022. Uh, what I will assure you, Deputy, following you raising it here in the Dáil, 
uh, I will make further contact with the Chief Executive of Irish Water uh, to make sure any works we can do that we expedite them. Uh, we're putting in as a government, as you know, €6 billion Euro between now and 2026 into capital infrastructure on a multi-annual basis that's never been done before. So, you know, great progress is being made, but there are still uh, wastewater treatment plants that would have odour issues or do have odour issues, such as Drada. Such, such, well, what, what, what I will do, Deputy, following your intervention today, and I assure you of that, is I will make contact at a senior level with Irish Water and revert back to you. And I thank you for raising the matter. All right, well, watch that space, and we'll be watching that space, of course. Uh, that's uh, Darrell O'Brien, the Minister for Housing, responding to Fergus O'Dowd in the Dáil yesterday about the smell in Drogheda from the wastewater plant. Thanks uh, to Mairead in Drogheda, who's been on the phone to us uh, this morning. Mairead wants to know, what is it with this government and hospitals? Nothing is straightforward. We have the fiasco with the Children's Hospital, which is costing a fortune, and now this with the National Maternity Hospital. It needs to be built. And I think that's the problem that everybody has with this particular story. Everybody agrees. Uh, and I don't mean everybody listening to us. I mean, all of the politicians uh, agree. Sinn Féin uh, agrees. Fianna Fáil agrees. Fianna Gael agrees. Uh, Labour, Social Democrats, uh, the, all of the independents, people for... You, everybody says it is a, an essential thing that this uh, hospital is built. Uh, and then there's... Um, the question about services, everybody agrees uh, and everybody agrees about everything except when you get down to uh, the minutiae of it all it seems and um, that's where it gets very difficult to understand. Well it's not difficult to understand, it's difficult to decide uh, who was right and who was wrong uh, because the government uh, and others are saying that uh, all of the services will be delivered in the hospital. I think others are, are saying are you sure? I'm not even sure that anybody is saying they won't but they are saying are you sure that's the case? And therein lies that chink uh, of doubt. Uh, Sheila is in County Louth and she says if they don't want any religious influences, how can uh, they keep out evil? Well, <laughs> well I suppose uh, some would argue it's the same thing. <laughs> I think uh, when you see what the religious, the evil things uh, that religious uh, did in institutions over the years, uh, you could argue that that's exactly the objective to keep the evil out. Anyway, you've been listening to Superintendent Andy Waters on the news uh, speaking about uh, women being attacked uh, in the Drogheda area. He was speaking to Mark O'Driscoll of LMFM's news following on from the Joint Policing Committee hearing yesterday. And we'll hear a little bit more of what he had to say to Mark. Yeah, that's correct. We, we, we treat each of these incidents very, very seriously. But uh, I would appeal directly to anybody who is an injured party or a victim in such an incident to, first of all, contact on Gardaíochána. Um, anybody that has contacted us, we have been able to take proactive action, prompt investigation, and we have arrested people for some of those incidents those people are either in custody or they're before the courts with strict bail conditions. But if, say, the injured parties don't contact us at all, right, maybe we're hearing of it secondhand through social media, but if they contact us firsthand, uh, um, we will, you know, potential witnesses to be able to help them, um, valuable evidence at the scene, we will get that. If they don't, we may lose all that. And uh, I think we've shown in recent years and drawn that people can come forward and talk to us in confidence. Uh, and we will deal with each case on an individual basis. And if people want to talk to us confidentially, please come forward and talk to us. And what's the best thing to do, Superintendent? Is it to call into yourselves in the station or yeah, pick up um, the phone and dial 999? Yeah, the, I mean, the simplest one that people know is to ring 999 straight away. 
And if you ring 999, you'll get through to a Garda communication centre. And they have overall responsibility for all mobiles, all personnel on the ground. And they can dispatch a Garda mobile straight away to the instant, irrespective of where it is in Drod or the surrounding areas. But uh, if people still, if they want to call into the Garda station, they can come in and talk to a, a male or a female member of Garda Shikana in confidence, and we will deal with each and every complaint. And take, we, we treat these uh, instance very, very seriously. Superintendent, it was brought up here at the meeting this afternoon, but a number of defibrillators in the Drogheda area have been damaged or vandalised, I suppose, in recent weeks. You were saying that you're following a definite line of inquiry in relation to those incidents. I think they are despicable acts, is the only way I can describe them. And to damage uh, or interfere with a, a defibrillator unit, which is put there for the very purpose of potentially, if necessary, saving a person's life, and uh, in relation to one of those instances, we are following a very definite line of inquiry uh, and we have um, a suspect identified for that. And the other ones are under investigation. But I can guarantee the community in Drogheda that anybody that we arrest for interfering or damaging a defibrillator unit will get the full rigours of the law. And finally, Superintendent, there was mentioned there at the meeting that the number of public order incidents in recent weeks have increased. That's increased numbers of people socialising, but perhaps there's a message for those people too. Yeah, um, it, it's not to say that it's got out of hand terribly, but the, the, the figures are up, obviously, on the last two years because during the, the pandemic, uh, nightclubs and pubs were severely restricted. And what we've found is uh, there's a, a young group of people who for two years, some of them are going to a nightclub for the first time. Uh, it's a new experience for them. So we would just appeal to them to, to you know, drink responsibly, don't engage in you know, taking any other substances, but drink responsibly. And you know, when they're coming out, don't get involved in any public disorder on the streets of Drogheda. That's the Chief Superintendent in Louth, Andrew Waters, speaking to LMFM News, Mark O'Driscoll. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Alan Nolan is uh, the community warden in County Meath. He, he says it's not often that he's lost for words, uh, but he uh, did find it difficult uh, to describe uh, to the Irish Times uh, how he felt exactly about some dumping that has occurred at Haystown, at a tributary to the Boyne River. Let's see what he has to say now. Alan, good morning to you, uh, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. I, I know that you said uh, you were sickened at what you came across. Maybe you'd Describe it to our listeners. Yeah, on Saturday afternoon, a good friend of mine, John Keating, he Keating's Island Nav, and he was pulled in for his lunch there beside Haystown. It's a nice little pull-in area. A lot of people use it for lunch if they're in the area. And John rang me because he could see over the bridge he was in a lorry. And he asked just sickening Michael a couch, an armchair, office chairs. Uh, there's no big skip bags full of effectively bedding, like pillows, duvets mattresses, like, you name it, it was in it. It's the, clean, the cleaning out of a house is basically what it was. Right. That's, mm. It's absolutely disgusting into a river. And there is a family of otters, actually. I have seen them. My colleague Ashley has seen them. We Sometimes when I'm in the area, I will have my lunch there. It's a very peaceful place to go in, just sit down, have your lunch, listen to the water. And over the last two years, we've noticed this family of otters in the area. But, like, mm. for people to do what they've done, it is absolutely into the pit of your stomach to see that someone at this day and age will actually give someone their waste, which we assume has happened because you would need a van to carry all this material 
and then dump it. If they dump it on the side of the road, it's still bad. But to dump it where they dump it, it might feel it was just absolutely sickening. sickening. Mm, yeah, uh, and a threat to the otters and other wildlife. Uh, absolutely. A, a, a beautiful and rare thing to have a family of otters like that as well and something that should be cherished. Uh, but as you say, uh, this is what you've uh, come a- across and it shows the disregard for the countryside, let alone the environment uh, generally. Uh, but I think you're a man on a mission. Uh, I was reading that you're going to rip the couch apart to try and find out who dumped it I there. I did, I did. Yeah. I ripped the couch apart yeah. and mm. yeah, we found we didn't find anything of substance unfortunately. I'm actually sitting here on the Tully Allen Road just off the N2 where another friend of mine contacted me yesterday. There's another leather two-seater, I'm just looking at it here now, a two-seater leather couch that's been thrown on the side of the road which baffles mm. me to be honest because Meath County Council have opened up the recycling centres. So we have special days where you, you can go in and get rid of your sofas for free and your mattresses and toys. Your mattresses? Yes. Right, because because a lot of people give out about the cost of uh, bringing the. Ah, to do, Michael. But yeah. in fairness, I I done a little survey myself there about four years ago, and I averaged out that everyone changes their mattress, and on average, eight to twelve years. Yeah, yeah. Now, yeah. if you put three euros a year, and we're saying a year, mm. three euros a year under your mattress, it's a pay to recycle it. Mm. Like it's not that much money, and people will fold them into a car. Rather than drive to the recycling centre and pay your fifteen to twenty yeah. euros, they're yeah. dumped them on the side of the yeah. road. And you pay a, you pay hundreds, if not thousands, for a mattress apart from anything else. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. which is it's yeah. just baffling. Like the people think I don't know, it's a mindset of a certain amount of people. But like what's happening is and I'm gonna call out Facebook on this, and mm. I have to call them out on it, they're allowing these illegal advertisers to advertise without putting up a waste collection permit. People are then saying, oh yeah, your man, man in the van, Fletcher rubbish, it's yeah. only 50 mm. euros where if you went to a recycling centre, it could cost you 70 or it could cost you, or if you wait till a mm. free recycling day, it'll cost you nothing. Okay, but see, like, I, the thing I was trying to emphasise there is that you're doing it, uh, that you're allowing people to come and uh, get rid of their mattress free. I paid 20 euro not so long ago, but uh, people can do it free of charge. Yes, absolutely. If you keep an eye on the Mead, Mead County Council social media site, you'll see the days that we have open. Like, it was only last week we had an open day for couches and sofas, but yet, in the last week, we're probably after picking up four of them off the side of the road mm. in the county. Well, we're well used to seeing uh, couches uh, and uh, fridges and cookers, and, and it's the same thing with the fridges and the cookers. All these white goods are, are recyclable, free of charge. Uh, uh, but uh, there's a, a new phenomenon. Tell me about the five-gallon drums of oil. We seem to be finding a lot of drums of oil lately, a lot of them, and I can't, I can't figure it out. But they're obviously backyard mechanics, as we we'll call them, um, fixing up cars or servicing cars, and don't get rid of. They're not registered. You have to register. If you're a mechanic, you register with the EPA through Mead County Council to dispose of your batteries, your solvents, your oils, your petrols, your diesels, and you do it in a norm a fashion that is safe to the environment. But a lot of these people, I don't know why, we seem to be finding a lot of five-gallon drums of burnt oil, waste oil, even gallon drums. And then in some cases, 45-gallon drums, the big, big drums, the barrels of oil. It seems to be in the last six to eight months we're finding an awful lot of them and we can't we can't get an explanation to it. I'd say you'd love to know who's behind it and uh, oh, to absolutely. hear from anybody who had information about it. But just on that other mm. thing as well, the dumping incident has been mm. spread wide on social media. If someone knows where it came from, mm. obviously if you're loading a couch, you might see your neighbour loading quite a bright red couch. 
don't be afraid to contact me, County Council Environment Section. You can do it in confidence, and we'll, we'll, we will deal with you in confidence, but we need to, we need to stop these guys, Mike, and we need people to realise, do not give your rubbish to these illegal collectors. If they do not give you a receipt, or if they don't give you a waste collection permit, they are illegal. You mm. can go on to the NWPCO, www.nwpco.ie, put in Michael Reid. If Michael Reid is not on it, you can do a quick search. If Michael Reed is not on it, Michael Reed is collecting illegally. And mm-hmm. the chances are that rubbish will not make it to its final destination of a landfill or a recycling centre. It's going to end up on the side of the road, in a ditch, in a bog, somewhere in the countryside. And if we find out who it is, we will prosecute the owner of that material. You sound frustrated, uh, if you don't mind me very, saying very so. Very frustrated, yeah. Michael. It's, yeah. it's absolutely, it's, it's, it's criminal in yeah. the times we're in that there's, mm. such, there's so many outlets to get rid of this waste. And it's not that expensive over the lifespan of a couch. People have couches for years. Over the lifespan of a couch, put two euros aside every year and in 10 years' time, use 20 euros or whatever it is. It'll pay for your couch to be recycled. Yeah, and is, <laughs> the, is fly tipping or legal dumping or whatever you want to call it, is it getting worse? It's on a level at the minute. At the pandemic, when it started, the first couple of weeks in the pandemic, it was crazy. And then after week five, six, everyone started cleaning out their sheds, giving it to these illegal collectors. It was just crazy during the pandemic. It was just crazy. But it's still on a level pre-pandemic. People still don't give a damn where to get rid of the rubbish. As long as it's out of their house, they don't care. And that's what's bugging us big time is that these people don't care. It goes out to the countryside. They're the very same people that will walk up a road and give out about stuff being dumped in the ditch. Right. But little do they know, it's probably their rubbish that they gave to an illegal collector that that had been dumped there. Right. OK. There's a lesson in that for all of us. Uh, and we can work to help you do your work uh, by making contact with you and giving you information if we have it. Um, yeah, and, and, and if people see these advertisements on Facebook, yeah. contact me, County Council, or go into the Facebook really? page that's mm. on. There's three little dots on the right-hand side. Yeah. Press it and report the ad to Facebook. Okay. We need we need Facebook. We need other social media outlets yeah. to stop allowing these people out. Or, or report the ad to you. Exactly. All right. Okay. Alan, thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Michael, uh, thank you. Thank Nothing. you. That's Alan Nolan, who is uh, the community warden in County Meath. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, you heard earlier on uh, some uh, clinicians uh, were speaking before the Oireachtas Health Committee yesterday and gave their views on how services will be delivered there. Uh, we'll hear from two of them now, two renowned clinicians, uh, Dr. Rona Mahoney, former master of uh, the Maternity Hospital, and also Professor Mary Higgins. Have you any worries about uh, uh, any possible religious influence? on the uh, procedures that may or may not take place in the hospital? Um, absolutely not, um, for two main series of reasons. Um, one is the series of protections that are built into the legal framework that has arisen out of Mulvey. This is a series of legal frameworks, a series of documents that creates layer and layer and layer and layer of protection. It is a separate company. It's a separate legal entity, the NMH-DAC, and that's very important. And if in the course of our conversation, I'd really like an opportunity to go through all of those layers in detail that give us those protections. In parallel, St. Vincent's Hospital is now a secular organisation. There is no link to the church that is over, that is gone. When the share transfer completed, that was the end of any association with the religious system of charity, any association with religion. 
We are now a secular organization and the constitutions of Vincent's, the holding company that holds the shares, and the operating company, if you like, St. Vincent's Healthcare Group, those constitutions are published in full um, on the website. And there is no vehicle or mechanism through which any religious ethos, any Catholic ethos, um, can be imposed. And that's terribly important. I think the practical points of do we have any concerns is that we've already provided that care. And if we particularly look at termination and pregnancy care, the vast majority of who attend us are fit and healthy and well. There's a significant proportion that have medical conditions where I then have to talk to the clinicians in Vincent's and they give that advice without any issue and do it appropriately and kindly and respectfully. And there have been women who have required termination of pregnancy care on the physical campus of Vincent's without any issue. Any issue from the clinicians, any issue from the management staff, any issue from administrative staff. All right, that's the view of uh, Dr. Rona Mahoney and Professor Mary Higgins, who were both speaking at that Roxas Health Committee yesterday about what services will be available and what services won't be available. All of the maternity services that are legally available in the state will be delivered, they say, in the new National Maternity Services uh, Hospital and the Vatican and the nuns won't be saying you can't carry out abortions or tubal ligation, sterilisation or gender uh, reaffirmation and all of uh, these other issues uh, that have uh, been contentious, uh, I suppose, uh, in terms of people's views in the past. And once they're legally permissible, they will be available in the hospital, according to the clinicians. So we'll hear a different view uh, from another eminent uh, clinician, uh, Professor Peter Boylan, or Dr. Peter Boylan, who'll be before uh, the committee today, a former master of the Paternity Hospital himself. Margaret, uh, thank you for your text. Margaret says, when I think of the millions of taxpayers' money that's been wasted by governments deciding where these two new hospitals will be built, it's hard to take. Neither should be where they are. And I'm sure she's talking about the Children's Hospital at St. James's and uh, the National Maternity Hospital, this proposal to have it at Vincent's. And she says politics decided where they went. Bertie wanted the matter. James Riley wanted St. James's. Uh, and it seems they all wanted St. Vincent's when Blanchardstown was the place to build them with plenty of ground and easier access. Thanks uh, for that, Margaret. Rita Kay in touch saying John Lahart uh, was talking through his hat uh, saying that uh, the uh, people had houses had to pay ground rent but they still uh, owned their houses. Uh, Years later, she says, the ground had to be bought by the people off the councils uh, so the hospital uh, won't be the state's hospital until they own the land, uh, says Rita and I suppose that's the kind of doubt that people have. Uh, Thanks uh, for sharing that with us, uh, Rita, and uh, for your text message this morning. Uh, A call to us uh, then from Maureen uh, who says uh, that if it was men who who were having the babies. I'd imagine there'd be far more maternity hospitals in Dublin than there are currently. Uh, They haven't finished the children's hospital yet and now they're embarking on another hospital uh, and it's embroiled in controversy as much as the last one. I I think uh, that they're making too much of a song and dance uh, about the religious aspect in all of it uh, and she says the main thing is to get this hospital built. Well, I, I think everybody agrees with the last part Uh, Maureen, uh, but you couldn't have a a hospital, a maternity hospital that didn't provide abortion services because the church said you couldn't. You couldn't have uh, one religious ethos or another 
uh, dictating what services are available in a country and I think most people would uh, agree with that. As for the legal situation, as I mentioned earlier on, the Minister uh, appeared at the Health Committee with an army of uh, officials with them. Uh, One of them was from the legal department in the HSE and let's hear a little bit uh, from John O'Donoghue uh, who gave this legal viewpoint. Uh, yes, so um, there is a clause in the lease uh, which, as uh, the Minister has said, provides that there is a commercial rent which will be what's called abated to €10 euro per annum as long as the HSE complies with certain conditions. And that's clearly set out in Clause 4 of the lease. And those conditions are very clear. And those conditions relate to the state continuing to provide public health care facilities from that uh, building into the future and for the term of 299 years and that I suppose protects both parties it, it protects uh, St Vincent's Hospital Group who own the freehold interest in the site uh, to ensure that the state doesn't try and change the use of the facility to something else uh, you know we uh, we have a, a facility here that will be state-of-the-art but in uh, certainly less than 299 years it will need to be redeveloped replaced refurbished so and there's no guarantee that it would be required as a public hospital facility in the future so there is no reason for the state to have a what's called a freehold interest or an interest into infinity on that site Uh, and i suppose that is there are other protections in that document to ensure that this facility once constructed at which the state or through the hsc has full rights to do um, is used for 299 years for public health care. Right, that's the HSE's John O'Donoghue. Seems straightforward, doesn't it? Uh, but there's a lot of concern about this phrase clinically appropriate uh, because sometimes uh, it doesn't sound as though there's much to a turn of phrase until the lawyers get involved. And then it can get very complicated. Small little words can have very big meanings. And sometimes there's concern about how words can be interpreted. Indeed, as I mentioned to you earlier on, this is something that was raised yesterday by people for Prophets Breed Smith. She was speaking about Savita Halapanaver, who you'll remember died of sepsis. And uh, I don't think there's any doubt in anyone's mind that Savita Halapanaver's death was an unnecessary death. This man here, I'm sorry I can't see your name, keeps telling us that we effectively own it because of these leasehold rights. Actually, we don't. St. Vincent's Healthcare Group say they own it. They own the land and they own the rights and they are on the board because of this, that and the other. I'm deeply suspicious of their interest in this project. And as a Minister for Health, who is involved in devising Solange Care, I do not understand why we would take all this money, all this public money, this opportunity to create a truly um, one-tier medicine, no discrimination against people on the the depth of their pockets or the size of their wallets, an absolutely clear, publicly owned, publicly funded National Maternity Hospital. Why we don't take the opportunity to have that? And that's clearly not what we have. And the plot thickens when you tell me about the private elements that are going to be in the building, the clinical independence stuff, come here. Somebody mentioned Savita Halapalanabar. I think of her every day, but I didn't want to mention her name. But now that she's been dragged up, somebody, as she was dying, took a decision to say it is clinically inappropriate to give her the abortion she asked for and her husband asked for. Somebody took that decision. And even then, pre-repeal, it was legally permissible to do that to save her life. 
Now, clinical appropriateness can be made in a decision by somebody who does not agree with my view of the right to choose of a woman's control of her own body. And that could still happen. Right, that's Breed Smith speaking at uh, that health committee hearing yesterday. We may hear some more from uh, that uh, committee hearing later in the programme if time allows. Now, thanks to Sean. Uh, for taking the time to call us. Sean was in touch with us about illegal dumping. He says it can be expensive to get rid of large items, but if you can't afford to get rid of them properly, then don't replace them. The book should be thrown at anyone who dumps stuff in rivers. There's no excuse for it. Thanks, uh, Sean. Uh, I have a feeling uh, that what you're saying uh, will fall on deaf ears, unfortunately. David is in Drogheda. I'm not sure why David is concerned about his identity, uh, his national identity, that that is, uh, just to be clear. Uh, he's concerned over Ireland's identity being lost. He, he feels Irish identity is being replaced with EU identity, and he feels other countries' identities are not being hidden, so why is ours? Uh, I'm not European, I'm Irish, says David. Uh, Well, thanks uh, for telling us that, David. Uh, I think we're all Irish, well, uh, those of us who were born here, uh, and we're all European. Uh, So, (laughs) I'm not sure, uh, as I say, uh, what uh, you mean by that, but thanks uh, for sharing it with us. Anyway, thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us so far today. Michael Reed on LMFM. Those who were knowingly involved in the illegal registration of births committed a grave offence which robbed children of their identity and their right to an accurate birth registration. I can only imagine the deep hurt and anguish that people must have experienced on learning of their illegal birth registration, on learning that the foundations upon which their entire identity is based are false. For this, I'm truly sorry. And I apologise on behalf of the government. The Minister for Children, Roderick O'Gorman, in the Shannon on Tuesday, apologising on behalf of the government uh, to people who had their births illegally registered. The apology hasn't gone down well. It was so insulting to people yesterday. And and I must commend Senator Erin McGreehan. You know, she too referenced the fact that you know, why on earth was this apology being issued ahead of a fairly routine um, discussion of the birth information and tracing bill? It was at committee stage and, you know, they were supposed to have a debate on the bill before it makes its way into the doll again. Right, that's Susan Lohan, uh, the co-founder of the Adoption Rights Alliance. Speaking to me on the programme yesterday, she explained why she had a problem with the apology itself. It was ill-timed. It was insincere because the minister didn't apologise for the the items or the issues on which the government are, are on the hook. Um, and people are hurt all over again. And an apology from the minister on behalf of the government is very different to a state apology. Yesterday in the doll, the Taoiseach, Micheál Martin, was asked by Keen O'Callaghan of the Social Democrats if he would make a statement in the doll and offer a state apology. I've heard uh, what, what, what um, survivor groups and, 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 and victim groups have said. And of course, I, I, I am more than willing to do this uh, and will engage now with the minister uh, and also with other groups to, to, in terms of uh, timing and how that would be done best. Because what happened here is, uh, was, was quite shocking uh, in terms of the illegal registration of births. Uh, depriving people of, of their basic right to identity 
and also consequential access um, to all information pertaining to their birds. That's the Taoiseach, Michal Martin, speaking yesterday. Now, uh, you heard Susan Lohan mention Fianna Fáil Senator Erin McGreen. Erin McGreen is on the line. Good morning, Senator. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. Uh, and you did say to Roderick O'Gorman that the Minister's apology was offered on a, a day that was not appropriate for it. I did say that, Michael, and I thought I would accept that Minister Warman's apology was absolutely genuine. But where I was coming from, and because I've met with so many of the affected people who were affected by the illegal birth registration, and we spoke about all of these issues before on this show, Michael, I really I, I've learned to to understand the trauma and the legacy and the and what has what all those wrongs have done onto the people. So I suppose from that understanding and an understanding the gravity of the practice, not only in the illegality of it, but also in the in the on the personal sense. I just felt that the people deserved a day on its own where the where Antisha would give a state apology, not only apology on behalf of this government. And I think Apology on the ha- behalf of the government, you know, I, I don't think that was enough because this practice went on by the state. We thought it was, there's evidence there that, you know, departments and government, well, departments knew about the practice in the 1950s. And that, that was one of the points that Susan Lohan was making, that uh, there, was, there was no recognition, though, in the minister's apology that the state knew about it for decades. Yes, and but that is in Conor O'Mahony's report, Professor Conor O'Mahony's report on this, um, on his, you know, on response to this illegal birth registrations. So, what I'm doing now is advocating for exactly what um, the Taoiseach says is working with the Taoiseach and and the minister to give that state apology, to give those people their time to be in the gallery, to listen, and to have the apology properly delivered to the people because the visitor's gallery the other night, Michael, mm. was empty. Well, it wasn't empty, but there wasn't enough people there. There are 155 people um, well, that we know about and then 12 others who were um, found out other ways that they had their, their births illegally registered. We don't know if that's the, all, all the numbers. And the and Minister, you, know, you, you're, you were critical of the notice that the Minister gave to people that this was uh, about uh, to uh, be offered, that this apology was about to be offered, because a lot of people only had 24 hours notice. Well, everyone only had 24 hours notice. I just thought it was unfair that people who are in America, people in, in England and all over Ireland, who just can't up sticks and come to, to Shannon Aaron at the drop of a hat. Um, it's not that easy for people. It takes an, a big emotional leap to mm. build yourself up to be able to come in to listen to to your your lived experience falls across the floor of either house in Shannon Aaron or Dole Aaron. And I think it really is important that we do give the. Historically, a state apology is given in, in the doll, uh, and uh, I think that's 
what people would and expect. Yeah. And that it would be given by the Taoiseach. Uh, yeah. And people listening might say, well, you know, what's the difference between an apology and an estate uh, apology? And it, it's a little bit like the legal interpretation of clinically appropriate or whatever. Words can have great meaning, much bigger meaning than they seem to have. But a estate apology comes with a, a liability, doesn't it? There's a, a legal recognition of neglect or wrongdoing oh, yeah. and accepting responsibility for that and with that liability and also then the potential for redress. But also that, 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 that liability has already been accepted by the state. There is, there is already um, you know, an acceptance of that wrong by the state. So, you know, and you can say that Roderick Gorman in really, a really genuine apology, but apologise on behalf of the government. The government, this government did not do this. It was the state over many decades who, you know, allowed this. So, but I, the government I, knew. The state knew. Yes, that's that's my point. So it would it would need to be it would need to be a state apology. And you say, you know, it, it is a wee bit like tomato tomato. It all means, but it is really really important. The symbolicness of having on T-shirt standing to apologise on behalf of these really important citizens is really important. And and I found I said in my statement to the Senate the other night that. I was distracted because, you know, what we were doing was we were having second stage debate on a really important bill, a really, really significant bill to, you know, deliver the identity rights and the birth certs and, and, and to give people their human rights of their birth certs. And I thought the two should not have been conflated. The two are two hugely important individual significant things and should be separate. And yes, they are in an amalgamated, they're connected, of course, but absolutely the statement should have been separate. And that was my gut. And that gut comes from, you know, meeting with the people, listening to them, talking over cups of coffee and cups of tea about their lives, about their experiences and about their feelings and how they've been treated by state organisations now, Mm. um, you know, by TUSLA, by the Adoption Authority, how they're, 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 their situation was delivered to them in a real crass and um, you know matter of fact you know just it wasn't delivered in, in a in a in a proper way so the bill was really important to create a framework in order that TUSLA and AI and adoption authority would be delivering the information properly there was proper support proper counseling mm. That was the bill it was about. The okay. apology was completely, complete, should be completely separate. Right. What went wrong, do you think? I mean, as you said, the minister's apology seemed to be in good faith and genuine to you. Absolutely. I said to Susan Lohan yesterday that it seemed to be heartfelt and genuine, but she said uh, it was disingenuous, it was hurtful, it was insincere. Uh, that's what you've been hearing. Uh, we also hear that after an apology to people, people are saying it's only caused more pain. It's added to the pain. It's compounded the problem. What do you think went wrong here? Was the minister misguided, ill-judged? Did he not consult enough? Or, or what happened? I think maybe it wasn't enough consult consultations. What the minister stated, stated on Tuesday evening was that you know, he wanted to come into the Shannon, the Shannon, deliver the apology in order to prove that it was this bill was going to solve and rectify the situation. 
He wanted it to be part of a package. And I think in his haste to deliver, in his haste to do the right thing and not consult enough with um, groups like, you know, in it, um, in it together, uh, in it together, who am I? That's the, the group um, that are the spokespersons for this and um, the illegal birth registration. Mm. That's what they. That's what they wanted. I think that we should have. We just do a little bit more consultation, and hopefully, um, after maybe you know maybe third, fourth, fifth time, lucky mm. Michael, that we might consult a little bit better and a little bit more more in further mm. uh, in future. So, um, I think this yeah, is will be coming. When you talk about a group called Who Am I? Um, it's very appropriate because when you find out you're not who you thought you were, well, then the obvious question is, who am I? Uh, and uh, and if, the, if the minister added to uh, that hurt uh, and compounded the problem, uh, well, it really is something for him to reflect on, isn't it? Well, I think it's, it is something, and I know Minister O'Gorman met with the people who were in the gallery the other night. He had long conversations with them. So there is no, you know, animosity with the minister and the group. They will be working together. The minister has been tirelessly worked on this. It met with hundreds of people. I just think it was just a step too quick. Mm. And we will reflect on it. We will bring it back. And we will get that state of apology that these people really, really deserve. Because they're decent, good people. Mm. And they have been through so, so much. And this bill that we're doing the information tracing bill that we were supposed to be only talking about on Tuesday night is really historically significant and important to give people their, their, their rights of identity and tell people who they are, where they come from. Um, and and that, that, is, that is really significant. Governments have tried and failed to do this for years and this government is actually delivering on this. Okay. Well-intentioned or otherwise, though, uh, I mean... To be making mistakes about something as sensitive uh, as this because you're acting in haste uh, really uh, calls into question uh, the Minister's judgment. Well, I'm not going to get get into that, Michael. I'm just going to go, I am very confident that we're going to move forward, get the state apology and give these, um, you know, the people who are affected by illegal birth registrations the the due justice and the acknowledgement that they deserve. And I and I always act in good faith. I listen to these people. I take my guidance from these people, from the stakeholders, um, as always. And I and I go on my on my gut and my instinct derived from them. So um, we continue to work hard on the issue. It's really really important, um, and it's important to know that you know we are delivering on a huge support package. We are delivering on these bills that have been promised for decades. And there will be enacted legislation that will be commenced and people will finally receive their full unredacted birth certs. And that is long overdue and is a really, really important thing to deliver. OK, the noise behind you is the bell calling you to get into the chamber. So we let you do that. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. Thank you. That's uh, Fianna Fáil Senator Erin McGreen. Michael Reed on LMFM. Yeah, to a private member's motion, uh, which is uh, sponsored by People Before Profit TD for Dublin South, Paul Murphy, who's on the line, looking for the cancellation of Ukrainian debt. Good morning, Paul Murphy. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. I- I'm not sure I understand your motion, uh, to be honest with you. What is it you're looking for? We're looking for the Irish government to come out in favour of the cancellation of Ukrainian debt. Um, so, at the moment, this is a huge burden on Ukrainian uh, society. Mm. 
um, impacting the fighting of the war in terms of the Russian invasion, um, and also would you know have a significant impact in terms of uh, the rebuilding of the country, which will have to come um, after the war. Okay, but the Irish um, government isn't owed any money by Ukraine, is it? Uh, well, uh, a part of the IMF, I mean, it's a very small part of the IMF, has uh, voting rights. It's through that, in a sense, as though a little part. But the, the, the main point is for the Irish government to come out and use its position, including its position in the Security Council, to support the calls from Ukrainian civil society, from trade unions, from debt cancellation activists, from human rights activists, to make a clear call to say that the debt, which is really strangling the Ukrainian economy, I mean, uh, the total debt is about 80% of uh, GDP, the expenditure on just debt fee payments this year is over 10% of all base uh, expenditure. Um, so to come out and make the call for debt cancellation, which which can happen, um, unfortunately the Irish government's response up until now has to be to say, oh no, we can't we can't make that call because such a such a move would threaten the financial integrity of the International Monetary Fund, mm. um, and there, there's no chance that cancelling Ukraine's debt would um, actually threaten the financial integrity of the IMF. Okay, but uh, essentially you're asking the Irish government to ask somebody else to write off money owed to them. Yes, um, because we think it's the right thing to do. Um, uh, debt cancellation happens. I mean, uh, is it any of our business? Well, I, I think, I mean, you look around and you see the Ukrainian flags uh, all around the place. I think people do have real solidarity mm. with Ukrainian people. Oh, absolutely. We want yeah. to do something which would actually make a difference, which would stop money flowing out of the country into the hands of you know, rich creditors and the IMF and the World Bank. Um, this is something concretely that would make a difference. To be clear, debt cancellation happens. You know, in 1950, West Germany's debt, half of its debt, was uh, 1952, was written off. Obviously, a debt cancellation happening um, throughout the 2000s in terms of Latin America, big mm. debt restructuring happening in Greece. Um, if you know, debt restructuring happens like all the time, we're saying recognize the fact that this debt is absolutely odious uh, debt. It's not the Ukrainian people's debt. And that as an act of solidarity, that debt should be uh, cancelled. Mm. Um, what is it, about $120 billion? $120 billion in total, yeah. Right, OK. Because uh, the Irish national debt is what, 240 or something? Yeah, that's about right, I think. Okay, um, so 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 that doesn't seem like a, an awful lot of money for a, co- a country of fifty million people, uh, in comparison to a country of five million. Well, the problem is the, the Ukrainian economy is only worth about one hundred and forty-five uh, billion euros GDP on mm. a yearly basis. Quite a poor economy, um, and therefore, for example, the repayments that they're making to the IMF alone, and the IMF mm. is the biggest holder of Ukrainian debt, uh, every single year it's the equivalent of paying 16.5 million pension payments in Ukraine. Okay. And we think at this time it's correct to say that, look, this money mm. should not be flowing out of the country into the hands of the IMF and instead mm. should be used for you know, to pay the pension payments, to mm. pay the school teachers, okay. to finance the repulsion of the invasion of, of Russia. All right, well, they're going to need to borrow an awful lot more than $120 billion to rebuild the country or people are going to intervene and fund the rebuilding. And I think the European Union has said that it'll foot that bill. Well, well one of the easiest ways that they can do it and to ensure that there isn't profit-making going on immediately is to say, OK, we're going to cancel this debt because this debt won't be payable. If, for example, they continue to insist 
that Ukraine is going to pay all of its external debt, then incredibly some hedge funds are going to make massive profits on it. Um, because a bit like at the time of the, the Greek uh, debt crisis, um, there is gambling on the international bond markets mm-hmm. about whether Ukraine will repay or not. So at the moment, you can buy up Ukrainian debt for about 50 cents on the dollars. So you can buy a pledge for the Ukrainian government to pay you a dollar in, let's say, two years' time for 50 cents. Mm-hmm. It, and, and hedge funds are out there at the moment buying those up. Um, we don't think those people should be able to profit from the misery inflicted on the Ukrainian mm. uh, people. Um, and therefore, one of the immediate ways to free up resources for restructuring, for rebuilding and so on, um, is to say, OK, we're going to have uh, debt cancellation okay. for Ukraine. OK. Uh, I suppose the reason I, I don't really understand your motion is that if the Irish government uh, adopted your motion and called on the IMF to cancel Ukrainian debt uh, it probably would result in nothing more than the IMF saying, who does Ireland think it is? Uh, and, you know, it would damage your international reputation. Whereas, on the other hand, we can be proactive uh, and donate to a European fund which will help rebuild the country far more uh, than the $120 billion that is owed at the moment, probably running into hundreds of billions. I, I don't agree. Um, okay. I think the impact of Ireland coming out and saying this debt should be cancelled um, would add momentum to a campaign that is coming from ordinary Ukrainian people, but then also supported by trade unions, progressive organisations around the world, and would build pressure on other countries to say there needs to be a debt uh, cancellation. Mm. Um, Again, the IMF can be put under pressure on this. Um, In the past, they've Mm. been put under pressure to agree to various um, debt restructuring, kind of partial cancellations of Mm. some of the poorest countries in the world. Mm. It, well, I mean, it, it seems a no-brainer at the moment that uh, Ukrainian debt would be uh, cancelled by the IMF, uh, but the point I'm making is, uh, is that our decision to make for them. Uh, you have a, a petition on uplift.ie that people can sign if they want to lend their support to your campaign. Exactly. We want to build mm. pressure from below in this country to say on the Irish government, the Irish government should make a clear call for debt cancellation. And the best way for people to assist with that right now is definitely to go on to uplift.ie. They'll find the petition quite easily and sign it and, and share it. And mm. also contact their local politicians uh, about it. All right. Uh, talk to me a little bit more about the Ukrainian flags uh, that we're seeing uh, on our doorstep as such. Uh, the Cabinet Subcommittee meeting today trying to find ways of finding accommodation for people. It seems an almost impossible task despite the fact that so few relative uh, to the amount of people that could have come here, have come here, we've less than 30,000, I think it's 29,000 people, and we've a real crisis. Because if you add that 30,000 to the 10,000 people who are already homeless and the 10,000 people who are in uh, direct provision, uh, we've got a very serious problem, don't we? We do. Um, and so this has to be the moment when all the stops are pulled out, when the rules that have restricted us or supposedly restricted us from doing what is necessary are uh, abandoned and we try to resolve in one fell swoop the question of Ukrainian refugees, the question of those in direct provision and the question of those people in homeless uh, accommodation. I mean, one major area that needs to be looked at and we need to do something about is the whole question of vacant properties around the country. In estimated over 100,000 vacant properties across the country. Uh, some of those, not all of them, but some of those are developers sitting on prime properties and so on, just knowing that the prices are going to continue uh, to rise and happy for that to, to happen. Mm. 
Um, so we, we need to say that's not acceptable as a society, uh, bring in very heavy rates of taxation for non-usage of those vacant properties. And if after six months they're still not being used, we'll then say the state needs to be able to intervene to take those uh, over because we have to say the rights of homeless people, the rights of Ukrainian refugees, the rights of those in direct provision have to come before the right to private profit, profit of developers. Okay, and what about this €400 Euro payment? What do you make of that? Yeah, I, I think that's appropriate. Um, I think, uh, you know, there, there was a huge outpouring of solidarity of ordinary people looking to, to help, looking to assist. That's really uh, positive. Um, so I, I don't think it's a question of, like, paying people, turning them into landlords, etc. But the idea that we should support people, that it is going to put pressure on their, you know, on their households and their families and so on, um, I, I think it is appropriate to make a small uh, payment like that. And uh, in reality, in terms of even value for money for the state, that's a better way of doing it than most other ways you can you can think of. Yeah, well, better than 80 or 100 euro a night for a hotel room, I suppose, exactly. and far more appropriate. Uh, but then, if somebody is living there for longer than six months, uh, what about tenancy rights? Yeah, I, I think those will come into play inevitably mm-hmm. if, if that situation. But the question is to use the time now. Like, you know, those people who are coming from Ukraine, obviously they're, they're grateful to have anywhere to stay, um, mm. but uh, we shouldn't be accept- expecting, you know, these are you know, families with kids yeah. or grown people, we shouldn't be expecting them to live in people's spare room for more than six no, months. No, I know, but I mean, if you could rent a house out for 1500 or 2000 or 3000 yeah. uh, would you continue doing it for 400 I think I think many people will right. because okay. uh, of the, the solidarity and so on that is I know. there and that's what they're, they're doing it for. They're not doing it for the money, you know. Uh, no, but I know, but... Long-term yeah. well, well, that's the thing that people don't know uh, and that's the question I think that needs mm-hmm. to be answered. Is, is it for three months, six months, a year, two years, three years, forever? I mean, it's not forever, uh, but, but obviously we don't know because of the, the nature of the war. We don't know when the war will be over. We don't know in what condition Ukraine will be in when it's over. Mm. We don't know whether most, 50%, 40%, whatever, mm. of refugees will, will seek to go home and feel safe in going home at that time, or which will, mm. what, which number will you know, intend to create a life for themselves uh, here. Um, but I, I do think we should view all of this as temporary in the sense, even if people are living here, mm. it isn't a long-term solution for people to be you know, have renting a room effectively or having a room in, in some people's homes. So we okay. need to need to have a longer-term solution for them. Okay. Uh, and I think people want uh, some assurance uh, about what their rights are in respect of it. And that's, uh, I suppose, uh, mm-hmm. why I was asking those questions. Uh, just to remind people before you leave us, uh, they can sign that petition to have Ukrainian debt cancelled uh, on uplift.ie. Exactly. Pa- Paul, thank you indeed for joining us on the programme as thank always. You, Paul Murphy, People Before Property D for Dublin South West. Michael Reed on LMFM. The cost of rent was 8.3% higher in the first three months of this year compared to the same time period last year. That's in County Louth. Up 9.5% in County Meath. This is according to the latest report from daft.ie. The author of that report is Ronan Lyons, economist at Trinity College Dublin, who joins us once again. And always got to talk to you, Ronan, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. This means that the average cost of renting in County Louth is now 1420 and 1551 in County Meath. Uh, the, the statistics you have in your report this time 
um, should be remarkable, but they're probably better described as being remarkably typical because rent continues to rise uh, year on year. That's right. In some ways, this is a very unsurprising set of figures. Um, I don't, very few people would have guessed that rents would fall. Uh, and of course, they have, have risen again. And I think as we open up after and open up fully after the, the pandemic phase of, of COVID-19, it's more sort of now to an everyday in the background. Um, we see the strength of demand for housing of all types and for rental housing in particular today in, in, in these figures. And it's, it's, it's not something that is going to fade away anytime soon. It's not a, a bubble that's going to crash. Um, it, it's unfortunately a, a reflection of a good set of circumstances. We have a growing economy. We have a growing population, um, rising incomes. All of that feeds into housing demand. But unfortunately, we don't have the, the, the housing supply to match that. And that's why we're seeing um, rents and indeed sale prices getting pushed up. Okay, it was cheapest uh, in 2011 to rent, was it? That's right. If you if you go back basically a decade um, and you look at the, um, the the average rent, the average rent in Louth um, at, at its lowest point was six hundred and thirty eight euro, uh, and that was down from a peak of nine hundred euro in two thousand seven, early two thousand eight. And, and the figure you gave at the start, the average rent in Louth now is fourteen hundred and twenty euro. So it's gone from six hundred and forty up to fourteen hundred and twenty over the course of, of of ten years. There, and there's nothing quite like that um, going back. It's hard to get rents for 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 you know, outside the main cities going back over time, but it has been a series for Dublin back to the nineteen forties. And there's, there's nothing really like what we're seeing over the last ten years. It's an unprecedented shortage of of, of housing in the face of strong demand. Right. Uh, that's 123% more expensive. It's 128% more expensive in County Meath. I don't think anybody's wages have gone up in line with those percentage increases. No, absolutely not. And one of the things with the rental sector is you get very different types of households. The, 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 the kind of the first time buyer slash mortgage, you know, the owner occupied this, it, it tends to be more. Um, coherence is the wrong word, but you, you can kind of picture the typical person entering that, that market. But in the rental market, you get all different types of households. You, you, have, you have families with children and young children, older children, you have older people, younger people, you have students and young professionals. And, and, and one of the ways the rental system um, responds to these kinds of pressures is you have, say, more students um, um, uh, coming together uh, to share a home. Uh, and of course, if they each bring a budget of, of 500 or 600 a month, um, and and there are now five where there were four, their budget goes up. But of course, the family that's renting can't do the same thing. So often they get squeezed out. And it's, you know, I find it kind of confusing to hear sometimes people arguing against the construction of student accommodation. And I get it, if it's near you, you're kind of like, could we not get something else built? But as a country, if we build student accommodation, it will take the pressure off things like the, the, the regular rental market because without any extra supply, you end up with situations like you have five, not four students or three young professionals rather than two um, um, crowding into a home. Mm. If uh, somebody is listening to us, let's say, in County Meath uh, this morning and they're saying 1500 yeah, that's no bother. Uh, I'd pay 2000 uh, comfortably enough uh, and uh, I'd be happy to do that. Uh, that might be easier said than done because there's not that much property available to rent anyway. 
Yeah, that's, and that's, of course, why rents are being pulled up is because the availability isn't there. Um, and if you go back three years pre-COVID to, to May 1st, 2019, if you look across the, the commuter counties, there were 280 properties um, available um, on, on the 1st of May. Uh, now there are fewer than 80. So there's been a collapse in the availability of, of rental accommodation. Even the 280 figure was low. Um, things were not healthy in 2019. It was It was a market that was short on supply then, but things have got much worse then. And I was actually so surprised by the figures when I, I, I got them for the first time preparing the report. I actually had to go on the site just to make sure that there wasn't some sort of glitch in the system. Um, that the, the, the overall, across the country, there were just 850 um, homes available to rent on the 1st of May. And even in the last few years when things have enticed, the average figure is between sort of three and 4,000. So that's why I, have to, I sort of did mm. a double take when I saw that number. It's, it's unprecedented in terms of the scarcity right um <laughs> it's just depressing i'm sure for anybody who's looking for anywhere to rent uh, trying to afford it and then if you can't afford it trying to find somewhere to stay uh, should we do something to make more property uh, available uh, so that instead of paying 1500 uh, that standards would change in terms of what's expected when you rent somewhere uh, and that maybe you wouldn't get something that's up to scratch by today's standards but you could maybe rent it for 500 or 800 euro I think that there's, there's two strands to the solution here, and, and often they, it's kind of portrayed as either or, but to me it's, it's, it's both and lots of both. Um, we do need lots more uh, market rental accommodation, um, and, and, and not just in Dublin, around the country. Uh, there's a challenge there about, about the cost. The, the cost of building a, a rental home is high relative to current market rents um, in lots of places, which is why nothing's getting added in outside the main cities. But in Dublin, we have um, thirty-five to 40,000 in the greater Dublin area. So that would include uh, certainly bits of need. I'm not sure if there are any projects yet um, for in, in, in Loud. But, but adding thirty-five, forty thousand rental homes in the greater Dublin area over the next five years would certainly improve the situation. And, and those new homes will be high spec. It's you know we, we have high standards for for new new build accommodation. The, but that's only part of the solution because the, the market will never cater for everyone. Mm. The other really important part of the solution is how we do social rental. And our systems there, they've improved a bit and, and uh, Housing for All was a, a, a step in the right direction. But we're still quite a bit away from what you might think of as responsive social rental where it's not, it's not about how much social and how much market. It's more about what's the overall housing need. And if you're not in the market, you're in the social sector. That way of thinking, I don't think we're, we're fully there yet. And we kind of need to get there. Well, we needed to get there a few years ago. Um, um, yeah. But we need to get there as quickly as we can. Okay. We leave it there, Ronan. Thank you as always for joining us. That's Ronan Lyons, economist at Trinity College in Dublin, who is the author of uh, the latest report from daft.ie. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.